Christology. This is the theological term we use when we refer to the study of our Savior, Jesus Christ. That being the case, Christology is actually a study that covers the infinite existence of Christ's divine nature. And not only that, but Christology also includes the study of his physical incarnation, which then covers his virgin birth, his sinless life, his substitutionary sacrifice, his physical resurrection, as well as the subsequent ascension into heaven. Furthermore, Christology covers the study of the messianic prophecies that we find in the Old Testament, as well as the eyewitness accounts that we find in the four Gospels. And finally, Christology covers the eschatological prophecies that point to his second coming, as well as to the millennial reign of our Messiah. Now, as we consider the broad scope of this biblical subject, we shouldn't be surprised to learn that this, uh, there's a great deal of confusion when it comes to questions surrounding Christology. Uh, when it comes to this topic of Christology, many questions are raised regarding the identity of Jesus Christ. And while some insist that Jesus is merely a mortal man, others will insist that, well, no, no, Jesus is divine and only appeared to take on human frailty. There are those who would lead us to believe that Christ Jesus was an angel, while others will insist that he was a good prophet and nothing more than that. Others still yet have embraced the belief that Jesus was a mortal man who through eternal progression then eventually became a god. And as we consider all of this confusion surrounding the identity of our Savior, uh, we would do well to spend our time this morning considering the Christology conundrum. For the sake of clarity, it'll help you to know that the word conundrum, it's uh, referring to any confusing question which appears to be impossible to answer. Uh, A conundrum is also a paradoxical problem which presents us with a difficult dilemma that isn't easily solved. And with this definition in mind, there should be no doubt uh, that uh, a study of Christology presents us with a difficult conundrum. The reason why? Well, it's because there are some scriptures that identify Jesus as a human being. And yet other passages present us with a Christ who is infinitely divine. And many people have struggled to make sense of of both of these truths. And with all this in mind, we shouldn't be surprised when we meet those who are confused by the Christology conundrum. And with that being the case, well, it's my hope that our study today will help us to clear up a lot of this confusion. And so with this as the goal, let's take some time to solve the Christology conundrum. And we're going to do this by examining five facts which help us to understand the true identity of Christ Jesus. Now, as we make our way through the text before us today, we'll begin to see, first of all, that the Christ is the son of David. Secondly, we'll learn that the Christ is also the son of God. Thirdly, we'll learn that the Christ is the Lord of Lords. Fourthly, we'll learn that the Christ is the King of Kings. Fifthly, and finally, we'll learn that the Christ is the priest of heaven. Well, with this as our outline, let's open our Bibles to Luke chapter 20. Here we find the Lord Jesus. He's presenting the people with this Christology conundrum. And as you make your way to the 20th chapter of Luke's gospel account, I just want to take a moment to put our text back into its context. I'll remind you, 
It was actually in our study last week when we learned about the day when the religious leaders of Israel, they confronted Christ Jesus about the basis for his authority. Remember, after arriving there at the temple, Jesus, he cleansed the temple by chasing out the money changers and the merchants. And, and then he began to teach there in the temple. And the religious leaders came along and wanted to know, hey, what gives you the rights? On what authority do you do these things? They wanted to know. Well, in response to their inquisition, the Lord exposed those men as being unteachable leaders who were actually abusing the authority that they thought they had. And, and now here we find ourselves in, in our text today, and, and Christ Jesus is again exposing their own confusion about the Christ by presenting them with a Christology conundrum. And with this as the focus, let's pick up our study of Luke chapter 20. I want to begin reading here at verse 41. Here Jesus asks, how can they say that the Christ is the son of David. Now, David himself said in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, David calls him Lord. How is he then his son? Well, here in our text today, we find the Lord, he's presenting the people with a question about the Christ. And just to be more specific about this, you know, it'll help you to know that the apostle Matthew in his gospel account, he tells us that the Lord Jesus was actually directing this question to the Pharisees who were gathered together there at the temple. For the sake of clarity, it'll help you to know that the Pharisees, this was a strict religious sect within Judaism during the days of Jesus Christ. And uh, it's, in, it's interesting to note that the word Pharisee actually comes from a Hebrew word, which means separated. And that's what they were. They, they, they had separated themselves from other groups. And it was their strict commitment to the Mosaic law that kept them separated from more liberal sects like the Sadducees. Well, with this group in mind, let's consider again the question that Jesus presents to the Pharisees. If you would notice again there in verse 41. Here the Lord Jesus again asks, how can they say that the Christ is the son of David? Now, as we take a closer look at this question, it'll help us to remember that the Christ, well, this isn't the name of Jesus. You know, his name isn't Jesus and then his surname Christ. No, instead, the Greek word Christos, which is translated Christ, it was actually used of those who are anointed. This would be a title given to the anointed priests of Israel, as well as to those who were anointed as king. And so Christos, or Christ, it just means anointed. It's also interesting to note that Christos is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew word Messiah. Uh, with that being the case, then, the Lord Jesus was essentially asking the Pharisees then to explain how the promised Messiah of God can also be a human descendant of King David. And in this way, he was presenting them with a Christology conundrum. How can he be both? Well, in order to further grasp the conundrum found in this question, it's important to understand that the Old Testament actually includes several messianic prophecies that identify the Christ, the Messiah, as an actual descendant of David. For example, you know, it's in Acts chapter, uh, I, I'm sorry, Isaiah chapter 11, where the prophet of God informs us uh, in this way. He says that the Messiah would come forth from a branch that stems from the family tree of David's father, Jesse. Not only that, but it's in 2 Samuel chapter 7, where God then reinstates this prophetic promise to David himself 
And he does this by declaring this. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now from this, we see then that, you know, this prophecy, which was partially fulfilled by David's son Solomon, was ultimately fulfilled by the Christ who would come from the bloodline of Jesse through the lineage of King David. The Lord later confirmed this in Jeremiah chapter 33. There he declares in those days and at that time, I will cause to grow up to David a branch of righteousness. He shall execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. From this, we can see then that the promised Messiah stems forth from the branch of King David's family tree. And it's later in Matthew's uh, gospel account. It's in Matthew chapter one. There we find the apostle Matthew confirming these facts and, and helping us to see that the Lord Jesus Christ did indeed come forth from the family tree of King David. As a matter of fact, It's in Matthew chapter one, verse one. Matthew sums it all up here by declaring the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. That's right. Matthew confirms for us that the Lord Jesus Christ is actually a descendant of both David and Abraham. Not only that, but it's in 2 Timothy chapter 2. There Paul assures Pastor Timothy of this fact. He declares, remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel. Now it's interesting to note here that the word seed that Paul was using, it's actually translated from a Greek word. It's the Greek word sperma. And sperma was used in reference to the semen, which then produces a person's posterity. For this reason, the scholars who created the New Living Translation actually render the words of Paul in this way. Always remember that Jesus Christ, a descendant of King David, was raised from the dead. This is the good news I preach. Paul was preaching the good news that Jesus Christ is the son of David, the descendant that was promised to come. And from this, we can see then that those who want to develop a biblically-based Christology, we must agree that Christ Jesus is literally a human descendant that came from the the, the bloodline of King David. Therefore, those who come along and, and, and try to tell us that Christ Jesus wasn't literally a human being, that he just took on the appearance of a human being, Well, these are people who are confused because they don't really understand what the scriptures actually say about the Christ. And while it's true that the Christ is the human son of David, well, it's also true that the Christ is also the supernatural son of God. To prove my point, we should take some more time to consider the question that Christ Jesus was presenting to the Pharisees who were there at the temple. With this as the focus, let's back up. Let's take another look here at Luke chapter 20. I want to begin once again at verse 41. Here again, Jesus asks, how can they say that the Christ is the son of David? Now, David himself said in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, David calls him Lord. How is he then his son? 
Now, as we take another look at these verses, uh, there should be no doubt in our minds here that Jesus was presenting the Pharisees with a Christology conundrum, and he did this by challenging them to explain how can the Christ be both the descendant of King David on the one hand, but then at the same time, the Lord of King David on the other. In order to further grasp this conundrum that Christ Jesus was posing when he presented this this question here, we should take some time to consider the apparent contradiction that Jesus was actually highlighting. With this as the focus, I should point out that this Christology conundrum is based on the issue that arises as we try to make sense of the fact that King David is, is saying that his own seed is superior to him. That, that's what David was saying in that psalm that his seed, that his eventual son, his descendant, is superior to him. And he's saying this before that son is even born. And and with that being the case, we must ask, how could King David submit himself to the the lordship of Jesus Christ when Christ hadn't even been born yet? In other words, if the Messiah is a descendant of David, and he is, then how could David refer to a conversation that Christ already had with God? In order to answer this Christology conundrum, we must consider some of the Messianic prophecies that actually present us with then the divine nature of Christ's infinite deity. One example of this, well, it's found in Isaiah chapter 7. It's in Isaiah 7 where the prophet Isaiah declares, The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Interesting. You should know that the title Emmanuel, well, it actually means God with us. So Isaiah is saying, hey, the Lord is going to give you a sign. There's going to be a virgin that conceives and bears a son, and he's going to be called God with us. That's right. Uh, According to Isaiah, the virgin would not only give birth to some sort of supernatural son, but she would give birth to Emmanuel, which is to say that this anointed one, this Christ, is actually God incarnate. And according to the apostle Matthew, you know, Mary is the one who fulfilled this prophecy when she gave birth to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is called Emmanuel. Therefore, Jesus is not only the descendant of David, but he is also Emmanuel which is the incarnation of God. The prophet Isaiah elaborates on this in Isaiah chapter 9. There he declares, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Creator, Prince of Peace. Now, as we consider the names that are, that's given to this supernatural son who is given, we can be certain that the Christ isn't just a descendant of David. True, he is the child who was born, as Jesus was born uh, to the Virgin Mary. But he is also the son that is given, meaning that he is the son of God given to the world. He is then the incarnation of mighty God as Isaiah puts it here. Uh, And so mighty God clothes himself with the frailty of humanity. Not only that, but Isaiah tells us also that he is the everlasting creator. Now, most Bibles translate this to mean everlasting father. I find this to be a a, a very poor translation. And one reason why is because it might lead a person to think that it's God the father who put on human frailty. 
uh, that is false. It is not the Father who put on human frailty, but rather the Logos, the infinite Logos of God, or as uh, John puts it in John chapter 1, the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God, and then the Word came and tabernacled among us. And therefore, uh, I think the Hebrew is better rendered here, everlasting creator, because the word that's translated father uh, can actually be uh, translated originator and also creator. And I think that's just more true to the fullness of Christology that we find in the scriptures. And so we see then that this uh, son who is given, who is also a child that is born, is our everlasting creator who was in the beginning with God because he is the Logos of God. And while it's true that the birth of Christ took place a thousand years after the death of King David, well, it's also true that the divine nature of Christ has always always existed because he is the limitless Logos of our infinite God, which is to say that this is the divine mind of God. This is precisely the point that Paul is making in Romans chapter 1. Here he prefaces this epistle by writing, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. From this, we can see that the Lord Jesus Christ has two distinct natures. He is both the son of man, being the the descendant of David according to the flesh, and at the same time, he is the son of God uh, according to the spirit. The humanity of Jesus is the seed of David according to his flesh, and the deity of Jesus was revealed then on the day of his resurrection when he rose up from the grave by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is what we talk about when, when, uh, when, when a, a theologian references the hypostatic union of Jesus Christ. What we're talking about is Jesus Christ having two distinct natures, not two blended natures, but he is distinctly divine, being the Logos of God. And the Logos tabernacled amongst us, meaning that he took on human frailty and became the son of Mary, a descendant of David. Two clearly distinct natures. Confusing? Yeah, just a little bit. True? Most certainly. And with this being the case, it makes perfect sense for King David to refer to his descendant who wouldn't be born for a thousand years as his Lord before he was even born. And the reason why? Well, it's because Jesus is the Lord of Lords. Now this brings us to our third point, because listen, the Christ is not only the human son of David, and the Christ is not only the supernatural son of God, but the Christ is the Lord of all lords. To prove my point, let's take another look at the psalm that Christ Jesus was quoting here in our text today as he presents the Pharisees with this Christology conundrum. If you would, let's let's back up and look again here at Luke chapter 20, beginning at verse 42. Here Jesus declares, Now David himself said in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Now, as we take a closer look at these verses, we must not fail to notice that the Lord Jesus is actually quoting this psalm that had been written by King David. And just to be clear, well, Jesus is actually quoting the 110th psalm. You probably already know this, but uh, if not, then you might like to know that King David was a prolific 
songwriter. He was the psalmist who wrote almost half of the songs that we find in the book of Psalms. It's incredible. And while all of his psalms were written as songs of praise for the glory of God, we also find prophetic promises presented in his songs. We also find theological doctrines defined within the lyrics of the songs that he wrote. And with that being the case, we should take a closer look at the point that our Messiah was making as he quoted the lyrics that King David wrote here in the 110th Psalm. And the first thing that we should notice, well, it's the way that he first uses this word LORD, which is found in all caps. This word LORD, which is found in all caps, well, if you go back to the original language in the Hebrew, if you go back and you look at Psalm 110, uh, you'll, you'll discover that this is different from the second use of the word LORD. In the Greek, uh, the, the same Greek word is used both times. But in the, in the Greek translation that you have, you'll see that that first use of the word LORD is found in all capitals. And as I've pointed out on, on many occasions before, anytime you find the word LORD in the Bible written in all caps, what, we, what the translators are telling you is that the holy name of God was originally used by the author. Therefore, if we look to the original Hebrew language, which is found in the 110th Psalm, what we discover is King David declaring, Yahweh said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Yahweh, this, this is based on the four consonants that, that make up uh, the, the name of God. Sometimes, you know, some scholars translate it Yahweh, others translate it Jehovah. But either way, uh, in the original Hebrew, what we find is the name of God and then the Hebrew word for Lord. It's for this reason that Robert Young rendered the words of King David uh, here in uh, our text today in this way. He writes, the affirmation of Jehovah to my Lord. Sit at my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. From this, we can see that, you know, if you look back to the original Hebrew, that there's a difference between the first word, rendered Lord, and the second word, rendered Lord. And while the first Hebrew word, rendered Lord, uh, consists of those four consonants that make up the holy name of God, the second Hebrew word that King David used was Adon, uh, which is the singular form of the word Adonai. Just to be clear, the Hebrew word Adon or Adonai, uh, this word is used in reference to the head of a household. Uh, the same word is also used of those who were political leaders or even sovereign rulers over a nation. And so this word Adon speaks of someone who occupies a position of Lord. Now, as we consider the meaning of this second Hebrew word, it's important to note that there are several scriptures that help us to understand that the Christ is a Lord, but not just a Lord. He's the Lord. He's the Lord of Lords. For example, it's in 1 Timothy chapter 6. There, Paul refers to the Christ as the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords. The Christ isn't just a Lord. He's the Lord of lords. And in Revelation 17, we also find the Apostle John describing Christ Jesus as the Lamb who is the Lord of Lords. Very interesting imagery there. The, the Lamb who is the Lord of Lords. Therefore, listen, Christ Jesus isn't just one Lord. He's not one of many Lords. He's not on equal grounds with a bunch of other Lords. Instead, he's the Lord of Lords. He's the boss of all bosses, so to speak. With this in mind, I want to consider something else that Moses wrote in Deuteronomy chapter 10. There he declares the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords. The great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality nor takes a bribe. 
According to Moses, the, the, the Lord, Yahweh, is the Lord of Lords. And, and that's what we see here because we see the Lord your God, that word Lord is in all caps, so that's Yahweh or Jehovah. So Yahweh is the Lord of Lords. Now, now think about this for a moment. We should take a moment to, to investigate this conundrum because we're being told that Jesus is the Lord of Lords and Yahweh is the Lord of Lords. How can both be true? How can Yahweh be the Lord of Lords and how can the Christ be Lord of Lords? Well, in order to answer this question, we must remember that the Christ is the human incarnation of the divine Logos. And what this means then is that the divine mind of Yahweh was clothed with human frailty there in the womb of the Virgin Mary so that Mary ends up giving birth to the God-man. Therefore, we can be certain then that Jesus is not only the human descendant of David, but he is also the Lord of Lords. To further prove my point, I, I want to consider the way that the Lord explains this in Jeremiah chapter 23. It's here where we learn that uh, uh, the Lord once said, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. Who are we talking about? The descendant of David. The Lord's going to raise to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell safely. Now this is his name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteousness. So this branch of David, this descendant of King David will come and rule in the earth and he will be called the Lord, our righteousness. We must not fail to notice as the prophet Jeremiah presents us with this prophetic promise that comes from the Lord, from Yahweh, this branch of righteousness, which would come from the bloodline of King David, is going to be called the Lord, which is in all caps, which points us to Jehovah. That's why the, 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 the title there, the Lord our righteousness, is actually Jehovah Sidkenu, which is rendered, like I said, the Lord our righteousness. But this, is, again, is pointing to who? Christ. The Christ is the Lord our righteousness. What this means then is that Christ is not only Adonai of Adonai's, but he is also Yahweh, our righteousness. That being the case, it only stands the reason that the Christ is the Lord of Lords because he is the human incarnation of the divine mind of Yahweh. Now this brings us to our fourth point because listen, the Christ is not only the human son of David and he's not only the supernatural son of God and he's not only the Lord of Lords, but Christ is also the King of Kings. And with this as the focus, let's take another look at the Psalm that Christ Jesus was appealing to as he presents the Pharisees with this Christology conundrum. If you would look with me again, beginning at verse 42, here Jesus declares, now David himself said in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Now, as we take another look at these verses, we must not fail to notice that the psalm that Christ Jesus was quoting, it includes a promise of kingly authority for the Christ. I like the way that John Nelson Darby renders the lyrics of this song. He puts it like this. Jehovah said unto my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put thine enemies as footstool 
of thy feet. In other words, the Lord Jehovah says to the Lord of Lords that there's coming a day when all of his enemies will be subdued. Think about that. Yahweh is saying to the Lord, there's coming a day when I will submit all of your enemies under your feet. What this means is that that the Christ is not only the Lord of Lords, but this also helps us to see that he is the King of Kings. To prove my point, let's consider the way that David puts it in the 110th Psalm as we take in a little bit more of the context of Psalm 110. It's here where David declares, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion rule in the midst of your enemies. Now from this, we can see here that Yahweh was promising to empower the rod of our redeemer until he rules over all of his enemies. To be clear about this, I should point out that the word rod, well, it's translated from a Hebrew word, which was used in reference to any staff that served as an emblem of leadership. The same Hebrew word was also used in reference to the scepter, which would be held by those who were the chief of a tribe or king of a nation. And so this, this scepter or this rod was used in reference to a king's right to rule. It's for this reason that the scholars who created the English standard version of the Bible, they render the words of David in this way. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until uh, I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. From this, we can see that the the Lord, he was helping King David to, to see this day when one of his own descendants would come and be anointed as the king who would rule over all of his enemies, or we might just say the king of all kings. And as the king of kings, the anointed Christ, the descendant of David, would receive this rod of righteousness by which he would have the right to rule over everyone. As we consider the lyrics of this song, we can rejoice in knowing that Christ Jesus is the one who will fulfill this prophecy. To prove my point, I want to consider the vision that John presents in Revelation chapter 19. It's here where he declares, Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with what? With a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Here in this vision, we find the Apostle John. He's describing the incredible second coming of Christ Jesus. And according to John, this is the point in time when Yahweh will send forth from Zion the mighty scepter of our Messiah. It's at that point in time when the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords will rule in the midst of his enemies. While it's true that there's coming a day when the King of Kings will overpower all of his enemies as he subdues the nations under his rule, 
Well, the Christology conundrum still presents us uh, with a Christ who doesn't want to just come and rule over us, but wants to save us from the righteous wrath that we, des- that we deserve. Now, this brings us to our fifth and final point, because listen, the Christ is not only the human son of David, and he's not only the supernatural son of God. The Christ is not only the Lord of lords and the King of kings, but Christ is also the priest of heaven who came to provide sinners with a way to be saved from the righteous wrath of God. With this as the focus, I want to take another look at the psalm that Christ Jesus was appealing to as he presented the Pharisees with this Christology conundrum. If you would, let's back up and look again here at Luke chapter 20. I want to begin reading uh, once again at verse 42. Here again, Jesus declares, Now David himself said in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, David calls him Lord. How is he then his son? As we take one last look at this Christology conundrum that Christ Jesus was presenting to those Pharisees, it's important for us to realize that the children of Israel were, in fact, waiting for the son of David. They were looking for the son of David to come and save them from their enemies. It's also important to remember the context of this passage. I'll remind you that the Lord Jesus was in the middle of a conversation with a group of Pharisees, and those Pharisees had just witnessed the triumphal entry of our Savior. They had just witnessed the triumphal entry. They had just witnessed the Lord Jesus ascending the Temple Mount on the foal of a donkey, thereby fulfilling the Messianic prophecy that's found in Zechariah chapter 9. It's there where the prophet declares, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. The Lord Jesus had just fulfilled this prophecy. And that's when the religious leaders came along. We're like, hey, what gives you the right? Who do you think you are? Well, this is the king who came to save Israel. And and many people believe this. Matthew tells us that the people there in Jerusalem, when they saw Jesus riding up to Temple Mount on the foal of the donkey, that they started singing the 118th Psalm as they cried out, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Now, just to be clear about this song, the word Hosanna actually means save now. That's what they're singing. Save now, son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name or the character of Yahweh. Save now in the highest. They're singing about the salvation that the son of David would bring. And therefore, they're acknowledging this is the son of David who brings salvation. We can be certain here as we consider the way they sang this 118th Psalm that the people of God were looking for a son of David, a descendant of David who would come and save them from all of their enemies. And while we can rejoice in knowing that this will eventually be fulfilled, it's also important to realize that these people didn't fully grasp how the son of David would accomplish this salvation. You see, the Jews there in the first century, they were expecting a political Messiah to save them from the Romans. And even today, the Jews are looking for a political Messiah. 
The Jews who are actually still, you know, put, putting faith in a coming Messiah, they're looking for a political figure who will rise up and save them from their enemies. Many are even looking to someone like a, like a Trump who will come along and, 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 you know, bring forth the Abraham Accords and sign peace treaties, maybe some sort of seven-year treaty that, that might set them free from, from the attacks of the Palestinians. And, and yeah, that's the Antichrist. And yet that's what they're hoping and that's what they're looking for, a political Messiah. And that's what these Jews were looking for. They weren't looking for a sacrificial servant who would come and offer himself as a sacrifice for sins to save them spiritually. They didn't really believe they needed spiritual salvation. Why? Well, because they're, they're the children of Israel. And so they were looking for a kingly Christ to come and save them from their political enemies. And, and knowing that they were completely confused about the Christology conundrum, Christ Jesus decides to direct their attention to the 110th Psalm because it's here in the 110th Psalm where we learn that the son of David is not only an anointed king, but he's also an anointed priest who will finally fulfill the sacrificial system and that the priesthood of Jesus Christ must be fulfilled first before he can become the king of kings. Let's consider how King David puts it here in the context that these Jews would have already recognized. Let's make sure that we recognize it here. It's in the 110th Psalm. Here, David declares, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion, rule in the midst of your enemies. This points to the kingship of Jesus Christ. But then David continues. Your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power, in the beauties of holiness. From the womb of the morning, you have the dew of your youth. The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Say what? What in the world's King David talking about here? Listen, King David here is helping his audience to understand that the Christ will not only come as the king of kings and, and he will not only be the Lord of lords, but he was also identifying the Christ as this heavenly priest who would be anointed according to the order of Melchizedek. Just to be clear, Melchizedek was that priest who was serving in Salem, which is believed to be Jerusalem before it became Jerusalem. It was initially called Salem. And Melchizedek was serving as priest in this region during the days of Abraham. That being the case, listen, the priesthood of Melchizedek predates the Aaronic priesthood. Now, in order to further grasp the connection then between Jesus and Melchizedek, Let's consider what Paul wrote about all of this in Hebrews chapter 6. It's here where Paul declares, This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem and priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace, 
without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. Here in these verses we find Paul, he's reminding his Hebrew audience about this interesting biblical character called Melchizedek. And, and, and Melchizedek was the king of Salem, which is translated king of peace. Abraham gave a tithe, which is a form of worship, to the king of peace. Yet at the same time, he was also the priest of God most high. Now, when we look to uh, the the whole culture of Judaism, and, and when we look back to ancient Israel, we recognize kings weren't priests and priests weren't kings. You didn't mix these two groups together. You had your lineage out of Judah. These were the kings. You had your Levites, and from, from Levi came Aaron, and from Aaron came the priests. You didn't have kings who were priests. You didn't have priests who were kings. But in Melchizedek, you find this individual who is both king of Salem and priest of God Most High. And yet at the same time, he has no genealogy. What? How can that even be? The, the, the kingly lineage was based on the genealogy of Judah. The priestly lineage came out of uh, the, the lineage of Levi through Aaron. You couldn't be a king without a genealogy. You couldn't be a priest without a genealogy. And so how does Melchizedek have no genealogy? And, 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 and I mean, just, just naturally, how does that even work? Who's your mom? I don't have a mom. Who's your dad? Don't have a dad either. No genealogy. When were you born? I have no beginning of days. I'm not saying he's an alien. But it certainly seems like he might be the infinite God. I believe that this is possibly a pre-incarnate manifestation of our Messiah, Jesus. And if you really want to get your noodle twisted, this might be a post-ascension appearance of Jesus. Meaning, this might be Jesus, after he died on a cross, was buried in a tomb, rose from the grave, ascended into heaven, and as he ascends into heaven and, and receives his kingly crown, then comes back into Abraham's time and says, Hey, I'm, a, I'm Melchizedek. Maybe. I don't know. But who else can have the presence of personhood without father or mother or genealogy and yet be a king of Salem and priest of God Most High? I believe that this is either a pre-incarnate manifestation of our Messiah or a post-ascension appearance of Jesus. But either way, Melchizedek presents us with a picture of God's plan, which is to help, to help us to see that Jesus is not only our coming king, 
but he's first the holy priest of heaven who came to secure our salvation. Let's consider how Paul explains it here in Hebrews chapter 7. It's here in Hebrews chapter 7 where Paul is actually elaborating on the 110th Psalm that Jesus was quoting, you know, back in our text today. But it's here in Hebrews 7, and in the middle of verse 21, where Paul goes on to write, The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. That's a quote from Psalm 110. And then Paul writes, by so much more, Jesus has become a surety of a better covenant. There were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing. But he, speaking of Jesus, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For such a high priest was fitting for us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily, as those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who have weakness, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints the son who has been perfected forever. Here in these verses, we find Paul, he's helping his Hebrew audience to understand that the priests who were serving according to the Aaronic priesthood, they were just placeholders. And you know, priests would die. The high priest would die. They'd have to replace him with another high priest. And, and all of these high priests would, would have to come along and offer, sin, offer a sacrifice for their sins first. And then for the people's because they were imperfect. But all of these ironic priests were placeholders preparing the way for the final high priest who had come before all of them. And while it's true that they were able to provide temporary atonement through the daily sacrifices that they were offering there at the temple, it's also true that Christ Jesus doesn't have to offer daily sacrifices because he's completed the ministry of the high priest and he did this on the day when he offered himself as a substitutionary sacrifice for our sins so that sinners like us could be saved. Now that's a lot to take in. And as we take, <clears throat> take into consideration all of these truths, I, I want to take a moment to just simply solve the Christology conundrum that Jesus was presenting to the Pharisees. According to all the scriptures that we've examined today, we can see, first of all, that the Christ is a human being born as a descendant of David. And so Christ is the son of David. And yet at the same time, he is infinitely divine being the son of God. He's both. This is a both and situation. It's not either or. It's both and. He's both the descendant of David and the infinite everlasting son of God. The Christ is not just the Lord. He is the Lord of Lords. He's not just a king. He is the king of kings. He is Jehovah Sidkenu, the Lord of Lords, and he is the King of Kings who will eventually conquer every single kingdom as he establishes his millennial reign. With that being the case, we can rejoice in knowing that the Christ is also the high priest of heaven who came according to the order of Melchizedek. And with that being the case, we can also rejoice in knowing that our Messiah has become the mediator of a better covenant which was established on better promises. 
That's right. Christ didn't come to enforce the old covenant, and in this we can rejoice. Now, there is coming a day when he will enforce the old covenants for those who rejected his salvation. But when he came as high priest, he wasn't coming to enforce the old covenant. He was coming to fulfill it. Jesus came to fulfill the old covenant. And that's good news because, listen, the old covenant condemns us. The old covenant says, here's the law, do it or die. You want to be judged based on the old covenant? That's your choice. But Jesus came that we might have life, that we might be saved by his sacrifice. And so he came and fulfilled the righteous requirements of the old covenants. And in this way, he's established a new covenant, which was written in his blood there on the cross. And this new covenant includes better promises. The promises of the old covenant, if you break the law, you're condemned. The old covenant you know, condemns those who break the law, but the new covenant, well, it promises life to those who trust in Jesus Christ. Those who embrace the new covenant by faith in Jesus Christ have escaped the condemnation of the law. And as a result, there is now no condemnation for the born again believer. Why? Because Jesus Christ already took the punishment that we deserve there on the cross for all of our sins. That being the case, I encourage every person to embrace the grace that the Lord Jesus provides to those who simply trust in the one who has revealed himself as being both the son of David and the son of God. Let's trust in the Lord of Lords. Let's trust in the King of Kings and let's most certainly trust in the high priest of heaven so that we can enjoy the salvation that is freely given to those who are now resting in the finished work of our anointed Christ. This is the way we solve the Christology conundrum. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we